In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We're here with the one and only Benjamin C. George, Mr. Wizard. He's an author, an entrepreneur. He is a man who wears many different hats, and we're going to have an interesting conversation today. Benjamin C. George, before we get started, what's what's been going on, man? How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right, brother. Just uh, getting out of the sick woods and getting back to real life and, uh, yeah, trying to get a whole bunch of stuff worked out for some businesses down in um, doing some manufacturing down in Mexico, which is interesting. So, yeah, just been busy doing that, getting Terra Libre project stuff going and slacking on a podcast. How are you doing, man? <laughs> man, you got a lot on your plate. Yeah, I, I've I've got a I got a few irons in the fire myself, and um, you know it's it's interesting to first off, I think. I'm really thankful that for both of us to be able to have a few things going on in the world why it's so chaotic. And you, know, you were talking about you being sick. I just got sick. What have you heard any any new ideas about this world of COVID going on? You know, we had the WEF and Davos talking about a, a new type of sickness that might be going around. Or what's new on that front? Have you heard anything? Well, I mean, I don't know the veracity of it, but did you see that Project Veritas video? man the project veritas video was amazing amazing yeah now that guy could be lying like he said he could just be a chump but at the same time you know they they didn't they they tried to scrub everything but they didn't disacknowledge that he worked for him right so you know it's kind of an interesting thing and if they're what did they what did he call it um directed evolution directed evolution there you go now, if that's the game that's being played, um, which I think there's a fair decent amount of evidence to suggest that there has been, I mean, you know, we've been dinking around with viruses and bacteria and stuff for the past probably 80 years now, 
as as a species if not longer right so you know for for us to just all of a sudden put that away and shelve it and stop i i don't think it's probably the most logical assumption so yeah i think you know we're we're pushing the boundaries of you know it's one thing to you know kind of mess around with antibiotics and things like that where you discovered they have an effect in the human body when you start pushing like genetic buttons where you have no idea of the downstream consequences the cross you know uh, what happens with the epigenome and what happens with you know when you take a couple generations of this and fast forward it through reproduction you know we we're you know we're playing with fire quite quite literally and i think uh yeah i think I think we're still seeing the the effects of that. I mean, you have this this COVID virus that uh, some epidemiologists say, you know, the the rate of mutation that this thing goes through is just kind of unlike anything else that we've really ever encountered. You know, we're you know, it, we're talking like you know something like a flu or a cold has like a yearly kind of year over year it kind of mutates a little bit based upon environment and all that stuff. This thing is mutated what, over 30, 40 times at this point in two years, two and a half years? Yeah. I think what we saw in that Pfizer video was the most honest statement to ever come from the pharmaceutical industry in the history of media. <laughs> right? Like Far off, yeah. Yeah, that's like that's as that's as clear as it gets. If you want to know what's happening at Pfizer, if you want to know what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry, just watch that Project Veritas video. And it got me thinking... You know, maybe this whole sort of pandemic was in fact directed evolution. You know, you know, we in the beginning we we heard quite a bit about the jab or the shots being a um, a sort of gen, uh, gene therapy, mm -hmm. and um, you know, maybe that is exactly what this is is directed evolution. You know, maybe there is a process involved where they want everyone to be getting this shot and. You know, I've heard some interesting rumors, and this is all speculation. Of course, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. This is just me putting on my tinfoil hat, saying what I think. But, you know, there there was some sort of people on the underground saying that people, the, the officials would love to see Medicare, Medicaid, and all healthcare become kind of a, kind of a subscription service. And what better way for a subscription service than to have to get a shot every six months, every four months, or at a certain age, you got to get it twice a month. You know, you could, you could see the sinister level of, of profits kind of sinking into the world of business and, and especially oh, yeah. pharmaceuticals trying to take things over. But yeah, directed evolution, it's, it's an interesting thing. And you're right. There has been an incredible amount of, uh, you know, the, the, the virus just, changing and modifying itself so many times it's it's a fascinating time to be alive what, what do you see happening on the horizon with the whole directed evolution and the pharmaceutical industries and the future of covid well i think um that's a huge topic for one but uh <laughs> i think uh it was the head of pfizer who last i don't think it was this most recent davos but it was the mo it was the most recent world economic forum thing they were talking about a new technology that will send a signal essentially when it's taken. Mm. So, and they cited, you know, mass compliance was the term that he used, I think, um, which is kind of weird when you're using the word compliance and talking about medicine, right? You know, usually yeah. medicine, if it actually is medicine, people are more than happy to comply with 
fixing themselves. But yet you have to use the term mass compliance in conjunction with something that's supposed to help somebody. I don't know. Seems a bit shady in my book, but yeah. The world's yeah. a bit shady in my book these days. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's Sometimes it makes me wonder, has it always been this shady and we've just not had the window, like the internet, to look in and see the machine and now all of a sudden we have this window we can look in or you know, is it progressively it getting – you think it, you think it's always been this way? I think it has. By and, more, you know, by and large, more or less, I think um, – yeah, it's just the advent of the of the internet and us having the ability to share information in mass that you know all of a sudden we can look behind a few of the bookcases and and see the skeletons yeah. in the closet. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I uh, I was reading up on a book the other day, just briefly called uh, Two Brothers and Their Secret World War," and it was about the Dulles brothers, you mm. know, John and and Alan Dulles, who was the you know the head of the CIA and the other one was in the state department and at that point in time like that's what kennedy was going to break up he wanted to break into a thousand pieces the cia and that book gets onto the topic of you know this was pretty much the takeover of the america as we know it it went from being a nation of free people and the cia being an agent for old money families in europe for like the corporations united fruit company wall street all the richest people in the world were now able to pay the cia to use the america machine however they see fit and they bid it out to the highest bidder and you know mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening but if you look at it through that lens that's sure what it seems like it, it seems to me that you know and it's unfortunate you know i'm sure that there's awesome people at the cia the fbi but it does seem as if those three letter agencies have been just using the United States military, the industrial power of it and the people to to move on whatever parts of the world. If you have enough money, you hire the CIA, the CIA makes America do whatever you want it to do. It's, it's kind of a sinister thing. Indeed. And, you know, when you don't have transparent accounting for something like that, when, you know, they can't they can't come up with how much money they actually don't know that they have type <laughs> idea. Right. Um, you know, the Defense Department for a couple times now has come back and said, yeah, we can't find a couple trillion dollars. Yeah. Not a small amount of money, you know. You the couch? We, can't, <laughs> we can't find it at all. It's like trillion dollars. Really, you can't find a couple trillion dollars. Yeah. So, you know, when you have when you set up these clandestine alphabet agencies that are, are not beholden to taxpayers, to Congress, to, to anybody, really. They're, they're beholden to their own bureaucracy. Um, yeah, I, you know, talk about a recipe for corruption. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had uh, three parts, um, non-government organizations. You put in a dash of secret societies. And you mix it up in a big pot called the Ukraine. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I know. It's... Um, yeah, and then and then you know the more you look into it too, the more you're like, really that that happened? You know, you have people like Bush Senior was the head of the thing, and you know the correlation with all the things that happened from him and degenerated on down, and you know, uh, like the whole cocaine trade, the whole reason that that existed was because the CIA was using it as a as a means to an end, right? Yeah, you know, fund all their all their black book projects. 
and then let alone you know you get into the freedom of information act stuff like mk ultras and stuff like that Whoa. and then you yeah then it's like what the hell's actually going on and i think by and large the common individual even with the advent of the internet even with yeah. all this stuff has pretty much zero clue yeah yeah that's that's interesting you know one of the things that set it off for me was as i got older and i started hearing about uh george bush senior who probably had an IQ of like 200. That guy was really smart. But what really what really tipped me off is what they kept calling him Poppy Bush. Hey, this is Poppy Bush. And I'm like, dude, he was the he was the guy that kind of got us in Afghanistan. What's in Afghanistan? Heroin. What's heroin made out of? Poppy. He's Poppy mm -hmm. Bush. Like that's his code name. Oh shit, it all makes sense. He's Poppy Bush. You know what I mean? Like it's this inside mm -hmm. joke about this guy whose name just happens to match the drug trade that's been going on <laughs> since you know the uh since the british went into the started selling heroin to the chinese back Opium. in the day yeah. like oh my god like there's a direct line there you know and, and all of a sudden when, once you see the matrix like take shape a little bit it's pretty hard to it's, it's like one of those pictures where like if you squint at it it becomes a 3d thing so when you mm -hmm. walk by, you know it's there. You just have to take time to kind of squint your eyes and look at it, and you can see it. Like That's how I look at at least the, the geopolitical landscape on some level. And I'm nowhere near an analyst or anything like that. But I, I think that you don't have to be. I think that you can just be someone that reads, that has their eyes open, maybe does a little mushrooms here and there. But I think you can begin mm -hmm. to see the world taking shape. And if you can see the world the way it is instead of the way you want it to be, it can be sobering, but I think you can get a better understanding of, of where you live. Right. And I think, you you know, you create a, a, a much more complete mental model of how this all works. You know, you start looking at these right. pieces of evidence and, it, and it's it's funny because a lot of people still call a lot of this stuff conspiracy theory. Right. Yet, like, you know, you do have Freedom of Information, information Act that, you know, these yeah heavily redacted files, but pretty clear and implicit upon what they've been up to how they've operated um and it's definitely been not just overseas things it's been propaganda right here in, in the united states too um in all sorts of experimentation in the united states uh and then you know i think once you start to line up these pieces of evidence all of a sudden you know yeah you, you're constantly wearing a tinfoil hat but you can see the the forest through the trees you know you start to see the structure of the thing you and then you know when you start to align like well why would somebody do that and then you look at you know all the downstream consequences that have happened from these things and you go oh well follow the dollar makes a lot of right. sense and it seems to tie these all together in a pretty nice little bow and um yeah i yeah it's it's a it's a deplorable thing but at the same time i don't think it's been anything new under the sun I think this has been going on for quite some time. Yeah, I, and that's what leads to the level of just you know pure narcissism or pure confidence. I, I don't think I, I don't think it's con maybe it's confidence. It's the people that are in positions of authority. They don't really worry too much about the people on the bottom because they've just defiled them for so long. And on some level, you're mm. like you could probably see how they get to a point where they're like. These people on the bottom are just dumb and they're stupid and they don't matter. We can kill them all because they're just so replaceable. And you, know, you start hearing terms like useless eaters. And you know, it's in some ways to me, like I, 
you know, I try to think of ways in which you could wake up the people on the bottom to revolt against the people on the top. I don't know if that's the answer, but, you know, when I look and I see just this level of distraction that's plastered all over mm-hmm. television, it's plastered all over magazines, it's all over talk radio, it's, it might as well be like that old movie They Live where they just have signs up, but these signs would say, hate each other, kill, hate, fight, sex, like all these things to distract you from the fact that there's a ruling class that's just extracting all the wealth from you and they're not going to stop. It's, it's so crazy yeah. to me. What, you know, what, what, where do you think we go from here? Or do you see signs on the horizon of us finding ways to make life better or is tech working for us? Or what do you think? Well, I think, you know, tech is that double-edged sword. Right. Um, and you know, those, both those edges can cut deeply. Um, yeah, it could work for us, uh, but you know it gets so quickly co-opted, yeah, that it works against us just as fast. Uh, and the sad part is, is even if you could all of a sudden wake everybody up on the bottom, let's just say you could snap your fingers and have it done, everybody eats the red pill, right? Uh, you still end up in a in an untenable situation where you know people are the an average of a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Um, you know, where are you going to connect with people? Where are you going to have congregations of people? You know, all of these things are controlled processes. You can't just go out there and, you know, even if everybody was red pilled overnight, can't go out there and start a revolution. There's just not enough of a system uh, to do so. Yeah, you might be able to communicate. Yeah, you can have some podcasts and things like that. But at the end of the day, people still need to eat. People still have families. People still have all of these responsibilities that they've, that they've, you know, entombed themselves in, in society. And, you know, that doesn't go away overnight, even if you could wake people up. So it becomes a very, you know, interesting situation, but I do think we're seeing kind of this, the old system, this, you know, just completely resource dominant system start to fracture at scale. And I think, you know, through those fractures and through those cracks, there is opportunity and there is hope. And I, I think over the next, I, it's not going to be quick. I think it probably won't even be for the next few years before we start to actually see real world solutions that start to counter these types of, you know, what we're seeing in the world today. And that's also predicated on, you know, if the world doesn't dive itself into a world war, which is a hell of a good distraction too, right? Don't look at us. Guess what? Yep. Yep. <laughs> I was going to find out damn war happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, you know, when all else fails, they take you to war. And, you know, you could argue that the monetary system has failed. You could argue that the pension system has failed. You could argue that the the Wall Street structure, the political structure, and the education structure are all fractured and beginning to fail. And you know, no one wants to be left holding the bag, so, you know, let's let's send some tanks, let's send some planes over to Ukraine and, and fight Russia to the last European. Right. It's also really interesting because all these things have failed, right? Yet I uh, just read yesterday, Exxon made something like 56 billion some dollars in profits. They're not doing too bad. You know, they had the, they've had uh, nine out of 10 of the last quarters have been record growth for them. Meanwhile, Hold you know, on. I'm pretty sure nine out of the 10 last quarter quarters have been, you know, completely de- debilitating to the average individual. 
you know, when do yeah. these things, when do these things get to such a degree where, I mean, you just push enough people over the edge. I think we've definitely seen it in history. Right. Uh, but, you know, for it to happen in modern times almost feels mm, fantastical. Yeah. You know, in, as it, it makes me think that there's clearly some complexity there. There's a lot of moving parts. And you know, on one hand, I'm thinking like, you know, if I'm in a boardroom with Exxon, then I'm high-fiving everybody. Like, this is fantastic. We're doing better than we've ever done before. If you're sitting in the military industrial board at Skunk Works or Boeing or something like that, or whatever, whatever military industrial, Raytheon, you know, you're mm -hmm. high-fiving. You're like, we've got to figure out how to keep this war going, man. We're crushing it. You know, and then on some levels, you know, in, in, a, in a city in, I don't know, in Flint, Michigan, you're – a city council is trying to figure out how to get clean drinking water. And I'm sure that there's everything's happening all at once in different parts right there. And to your point about, you know, it's happened in history, you know, it, it, I guess it's slow at first until all at once. And if you're one entity, if you're Exxon, you're like, look, man, we, it's, it would, it, we are not going to push the world over the precipice. It's going to be somebody else. It's always going to be somebody else, but all these things slowly working together just slowly consuming everything, you know, there's a real chance it, it could do that. You know, on some level, I think that. So that's what I think on one level is like, yeah, it is possible to move towards that doomsday scenario. And on another level, I'm wondering if, you know, maybe this is part of the human condition. Maybe we have to get so bad before we change. Maybe this is where creativity happens. And I think that there's been studies and writers who said that, look, warfare is the crowning achievement of mankind. We must get into incredible wars, then we can create the technology we need to get out of it. And I think on some level, there's probably people out there that are praying that we get as close as we can to the precipice because that's when you see the beauty of the human condition. I know that's twisted, but what do you think mm. to that point of we must fight each other in order to build things? I know that sounds crazy, but I think there's a there there. What do you think? Well, I think historically speaking, there's a great precedent for that. I mean, war has been the innovator of new technology since as much as long as we've had recorded history. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think there's also some other side roads there, you know, like, for instance, like a space program. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. one could argue that that was also, you know, a, a response to to a wartime process, too. So but at the same time, you know, that gave us a lot of that gave us the microchip, gave us a lot of different things. Uh, but I would think by and large, for the most part, war has defined the human race in terms of our technological advancement, at least in this iteration of what we call humanity. Uh, and yeah, I. You know, I don't want the world to go to war for sure. But at this point, I think we're seeing just the general breakdown of, you know, humanity in, uh, at social scales, at cultural scales, and what it can actually accept with what we have instituted in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, you know, if I were just to take a do a 180. And, you know, sometimes I think it's, it's a good idea to take your idea, your own idea of what's happening, and then just flip it on its head. So sometimes mm -hmm. I find myself like, you know what? 
we should go to war. We should just go and murder everybody. Like, let's just go out and conquer and see what happens. Like, you know, and when I start thinking like that, I think to myself, like, well, why don't we just join with Russia? Why don't we just join with Russia and just take over the entire world and, and take that route? You know, if, if we're going to go to war, you know, and, and I think we could get the multinational. Well, I think we could get a large number of at least American multinational corporations. I think we could get some oligarchs on board. I know we could get the defense contractors on board. Like, why don't we rally it up, guys? Like, let's get all the Americans and get all the Russians and just conquer the world. Let's take out everybody and put up just our flags. Let's just go and destroy and steal everything. Like, if we're going to do it, let's do it. And let's get the American people behind it. You know what I mean? Like, let's do it that way. Like, why can't we do it that way? I think I think it's in, in I think in part because there's only so much capacity for war at at an individual level. I think at the individual level, you know, most people are just genuinely, you know, they want good things for their family and their loved ones and they want to be left alone and they want to, you know, explore the things they want to explore and live a peaceful life by and large. So to rally those people into a fervor that says, yeah, let's just go fucking kill everybody is a, is a very large uphill battle. And I think has historically always been a very large uphill battle. And that's why we've always had things like, you know, uh, uh, religious entities and, you know, all these other things that kind of act as the bulwarks for these, you know, you know, have to talk about eternal damnation and all of these other things in order to get people enough skin in the game that they actually want to play to part and participate um you know that some sort of existential threat has to be there but yeah, yeah I, I mean you know yeah what what are you pussyfooting around for why don't you just go do it <laughs> i agree i i i was just playing devil's advocate because i i mean if you, it's i know it's like and I, to anybody listening like i don't really mean we should do that but but just do it as a thought experiment like think about it like if we're going to go and just take over little spots here and there like it, if you do this thought experiment, I think it will get you to a point of how corrupt things are. Like, like what is the strategic benefit of potentially causing a nuclear war over a very small place in Europe called the Ukraine? There's not really any sort of grand awesomeness that comes for the United States by the people. But there is an incredible amount of resources that are right there in the Ukraine. Like that's where all the oil pipelines kind of merge, like mm -hmm. a shift station. There's tons. It's like the breadbasket of Europe. If you want to control the world's island, you got to control that area. You know, when you when you're fighting Russia, you're weakening China. And so, from a geopolitical strategy, it kind of makes sense if you start looking at it from that angle. But mm -hmm. there's pretty much no real benefit for the man or woman or the child that live in the united states and so that is how that's where we have to have a gun pointed to our head look these guys are a nuclear they're nuclear and they're gonna kill all of you they're, they hate you it's russia's fault they're gonna murder you you know it's 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 always this invisible enemy covid mm -hmm. man you're all gonna die from covid no it's the russians they're gonna kill you wait a minute <laughs> wait a minute it's those terrorists over there in the middle east watch out for those guys you know if mm -hmm. you just peel back the curtain it's some guy with a megaphone yelling at you like be afraid be scared you know and it's 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 the five minutes of of fear in 1984 or 
you know, the five minutes of hate that they're trying to just feed you all the time. And the truth is we're probably not at all in danger one bit. You know, it's, it's just that the people in positions of authority need a constant state of emergency to push through the policies to make them wealthy. Well, it's not just the policies too, right? right? It's the, you know, we got to get rid of, you know, what, over a hundred billion dollars worth of old shit that was just hanging yeah. around. Yeah. And now we get to spend hundreds of more billions of dollars to replace that old shit. You know, there's a lot of wheels that get greased in this process. And yeah. Then, and on, on all sides too, right? You know, Russia sure. was in a similar position. They've had, you know, They've had aging equipment since the Soviet Union that is just kind of like it's use it or lose it type idea. And this, you know, war has always been a great generator of, of national economy. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's reasons for that is all of a sudden you need the iron, you need the copper, you need the manufacturing, you need the, you know, the computer chips, you need all of the semiconductor processes, not just for consumption but for a war effort and you know like you said you covered a lot of what ukraine has the other thing that they have a lot of is neon you don't make semiconductors you don't have computer chips without it without neon you know from a from a strategic point of view it's kind of like the linchpin between europe and asia and the manufacturing centers center of the world in china which is, yeah. you know, since we're talking geopolitics here, you know, that's an interesting thing. I think, you know, the Chinese system is to the point where, you know, a lot of their previous policies are now coming home to roost. Um, so, you know, the one child policy for all those years uh, is now to the point where all of those people are to a, to the age of actually like reinforcing the the demographics of the country. And there's just a significant lack of women. There's a significant lack of families being produced, um, number of children. And, you know, they've actually lied about their economic, I guess, you know, uh, what they've actually accomplished versus in reality what was happening. You know, they got a lot of big real estate developments. They got a lot of big um, financial investment stuff. That's all kind of, you know, defaulting because it was all kind of just this propped up crony capitalism type bullshit. Uh, so they're at an economic point and a demographic point where if they don't find some way to expand relatively soon, they're going to implode. And I think that's where you see the movement towards this whole BRICS thing happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're trying to push this timeline faster. And I think from the West perspective, yeah, I, they're pretty well aware of what that game is. And I think this, you know, the whole idea behind propping up the Ukraine is to make sure that that game can't take the next steps. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at it from the perspective of the great game. And, and, you know, you see the resources on the board, you see the players on the board. And there's so many moving parts out there. I spoke to a guy the other day who was telling me, in his opinion, he believed that the, the C-19 outbreak was a form of economic warfare put out by the CCP. Like, look, if we're going down, we're taking everybody with us, you know, and, and release this sort of, you know, plague on the world. And 
You know, it's, it, it, it is interesting to think about the different policies that the CCP has. I'm curious to get your opinion. The same guy I was talking to, really great guy and fun to talk to, he had mentioned the way in which the Ch China is moving through the different continents and giving aid to, the, to some of the third world countries the same way the IMF would. Only they're not putting a lot of restrictions on their money, or maybe not the same restrictions. It seems to me that the IMF and the Chinese model is to go to a, a country that's indebted, give them the money, or build them a port that they'll never be able to pay back, and then seize that land when they can't pay it back. It seems like black cat, mm -hmm. white cat, like they both catch mice. And right. so, you know, I, it just, it's just weird to me. Like, do you see it that way, or do you see do you see it differently? This guy was trying to tell me, well, when we do it, you know, we put restrictions. Like, you got to have, you got to treat people well, and you know, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that it's just mm -hmm. it's just a different bank that they're both trying to seize your property. What do you think? Yeah, I I don't think there's we how we do it and how they do it. I think there's just a way to do it, <laughs> and uh, and in that way, I mean, you can you can um, you can put little bows on it however right. you like. Um, like for instance, you know, personal experience when I was traveling, I spent a lot of time in Costa Rica. Costa Rica was this very lean country that, you know, people were always walking and, you know, always, you know, always making homemade food and all this, all of a sudden uh, a stadium gets donated by China and then a bridge and then uh, helicopters for the police department, cars for the police department. Fast forward another year or two of this effort. And then Costa Rica signs a free trade agreement with China. Now there's a Chinatown in downtown San Jose in Costa Rica. Now there's Chinese fishing vessels off the coast, fishing up the beautiful waters of Costa Rica and just raping the seas, longlining and shipping it all back to China. Um, every single grocery store, hardware store, everything that used to be these little mom and pop shops are now operated by Chinese nationals. And mom and pop shops in Costa Rica can no longer compete because all of the stuff that these people are getting is coming across through this free trade agreement. And they obviously have all the sourcing already taken care of because it's all, you know, a family venture essentially. Right. Uh, and all of a sudden you have no, you just take out a vast swath of the small and medium businesses in a country. I saw this happen in Ecuador. I saw it happen in Peru. I saw it happen in Costa Rica. Uh, and, you know, they're doing the same similar things in Africa with a lot of different African countries. So their game is slightly different. It, you know, they're, they use it as more of kind of like um, a grassroots type idea, whereas the IMF comes in and is more of a top down, you know, thing. But the end effect is the same, which is the people who actually live there have less and less control over their resources and the future of their economy and it, it kind of just gets wrapped up into this kind of global agenda this global game of risk yeah do you see do you see i was listening to another geopolitical analyst and he was telling me he had a different idea and his idea was that you know what we see in our country is is a lot of propaganda against the European idea of a multipolar world. And he's in his, in his, in his uh, words, he was saying that what we're looking at is a, a unipolar world. The United States runs the world 
versus a multipolar world where it's a basket of countries that are coming together to try and make the world more effective and efficient. And in some ways, he was really eloquent in the way he explained it. And he talked about how, you know, the, I think he said it was, I could be butchering it, maybe Kennedy or something. Like they had these grand plans to connect the world. And they've, and he pointed to the, uh, the, you could go and look, like there was a railway that was going to go up the coast through Alaska, join to Russia. We're going to be able to export stuff through. They even started on building some of the infrastructure. And then that was squashed when, you know, the new administrations came in and like, no, 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 we're going to take more of an adversarial role. We don't want to do that. We want to take things over, us own it rather than working together and have everybody do it. And his, the way he explained what's happening now is that you're beginning to see the world take a more cooperative approach. And you're seeing the new Silk Road come in. And he explained the the Eastern, East Asian nations as wanting to take part in an economy that they have been, you know, pushed out of. And the same thing with Russia been pushed out of and Iran's been pushed out of. So there's these these countries that want to come together, that want to cooperate, that don't want to be part of a uh, dollar hegemony where there's no way they can win and all that's exported is inflation to them. And so mm -hmm. the, his argument was, was pretty interesting. And on some levels I can see that, but on, on the longer game, you know, maybe I'm just propagandized because I live in the U S and I, I, I fall victim to the rhetoric. However, you know, I, I'm just curious, do, do you see, a multipolar world, if it were to come into fruition, would that be better for the people in the United States? Uh, given how much hate's been fostered by the United States over the past few generations, I, I don't know that it would be better for the common individual. Um, I also disagree that it's all this good faith interest in, in having a multipolar world. Uh, you have to look at the players on on the on the board game and what they claimed and what they've stated that they want. Like for instance, the China, They're, China has a one world China policy. They've stated it many many times over. They want to rule everything. They want to be the uni the uniparty of of the of the entire world. Uh, you know, other other people like you know in Iran and it, it, they have. Uh, religious leanings that would never allow them to play nice for long periods of time at scale, um, as do many, many countries, right? The only thing that's kind of really held that at bay is the fact that there is a big, bad United States out there who will come and drop some bombs. And, mm. you know, the willingness of, of that to happen from United States people has diminished so much over the years that now I think we're seeing, you know, just a completely different game unfold because now the United States Navy isn't going to come rolling into every port. You know, now you're going to get shipments of weapons and missiles and stuff. Sure, they might have been manufactured by the United States, but you don't have that you, you don't have that strong arm that's coming in to, you know, pull people apart and say, you over here, you over here. Now, you could make arguments that there's better and worse aspects of that. But I think we're definitely seeing the hegemony of the United States as, you know, the world's big brother uh, go away uh, for multiple different reasons. Uh, now, I don't think that it's all good faith and pats on the back when what happens next, because what happens next is now you have people who are 
willing to be bad actors in the game, uh, willing to make, you know, completely anti-ethical decisions, unmoral decisions in order to simply win. Yeah. Whereas we were always kind of propped up by some form of morality, even though, you know, like we were talking to the CIA, you could make arguments against that too. Uh, however, there was some overarching morality and ethics to how we operated in the game of, of this world, of this world game. Um, and I think the people who want to compete at that scale, they don't have that same type of, of, uh, of centralized backbone of ethical backbone. Yeah, which it's a great point. which means bad things for people. <laughs> yeah, you know, if if you pull on that thread, you can you could flesh it out a little bit more. Like if if we're, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see three theaters of war begin to shape up, and you have the Ukraine, potentially Taiwan, and then Iran and Israel happening, all right. of which the U.S. is sworn to brotherhood with. You know, these whether it's NATO or Israel or Taiwan. You know, we're over here like, look, we're coming to save you if something happens. All the mm -hmm. while, these three battlefronts are opening up. We have our own politicians that are just running in the back and stealing all the silverware and like, yeah, dude, look at this. I'm going to bump this up. Hey, Jerome Powell, can you keep rates low for me, buddy? Oh, can I borrow a trillion dollars and park it at your place and just make five, six percent while I burn all my employees? Can I do that? Oh, yeah, no problem, man. You know, and so you, like you have you could even you could even argue that that's a fourth theater of war. You know, you have these sure. these financial interests, these Wall Street bros, these tech bros or these political bros that are just raping the people through the top over here. And then like, you know, a house divided can't stand. So, you know, if, if I was an analyst or if I was someone in China or if I was someone in Iran and all those countries are talking to each other, like, yeah, look, mm -hmm. let's let. Yeah, here. Yeah. Let us send their Abrams over here. Perfect. You send your NATO tanks over here. As soon as you get in there, you broke the rules. Yeah, why don't you send your troops over there? Send all your stuff over. You know how, like, and we know that China plays the long game. You know, we've already seen Israel attack using Iran. drones in Iran, right? Mm -hmm. So all it takes is for, like, a coordinated effort. And, and let's not kid ourselves that China doesn't own a large number of politicians. So they could operate on four fronts. We, Russia sucks in America. Yeah, send all your money over. Your people hate you already. Yeah, keep sending your stuff. And they're just feeding the neocons, like giving them little tidbits. You know, you got a, you got a Victoria Newland, the oil companies, just pushing, pushing, pushing all the politicians to send more stuff. So we do. Mm -hmm. We're sending trillions over there. Taiwan is just sitting over here like a duck. China's just slowly waiting. They're moving ships. Like if you look at the way in which China mm -hmm. has moved their ships, you could argue there's a blockade right there ready to happen. So, mm -hmm. you know, can we fight on three fronts? And if I was those three countries, they're all coordinating. All it takes is for Iran to strike Israel. And I think it's game over because as soon as that happens, Israel, the chain comes off Israel. They start attacking. Lord knows what Saudi Arabia does. China moves in, you know, like it's just a perfect storm waiting to happen. And it seems to me that the United States is, it has to get to a point where it makes a decision. Are you going to take care of your people? Are you going to be a nation or are you going to kowtow to the very multinational corporations that run you? Like we have to well, make a already, decision as a country. We sold out Citizens United, man. It's a good point. And, you know, I think I think we've we sold out 
probably a little bit before that, but that was definitely one of the death nails in terms of is the United States going to live on as an experiment as, as a, of a nation yeah. for too much longer. And I, you know, when, when we just kind of bowed down to that blatant corruption, I mean, we essentially set ourselves up as the sacrificial lamb for all these things. Uh, the only thing that kind of kept it all, you know, still under the, what we considered the United States was the petrodollar. Yeah. And now you have BRICS, which is this new alignment with China, Brazil, um, even Saudi Arabia is now in talks to yep. join BRICS, right? You have, so all of basically the oil interests in the world, which the United States isn't, isn't any schlub when it comes to the amount of oil that we have right. access to. We just don't have the will to actually go drill it or the strategic need to go do so. But, you know, we could quickly become, you know, by far the world's largest oil producer overnight to compete against this. So, yeah, when you when you factor in all these things, you know, I think we're we're in a very precarious position in terms of the United States. us. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, we're looking at one of those situations where, you know, it's almost like you're just waiting for the Franz Ferdinand for World War Three to start. <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. The if you had to, if we were at the track and we were betting on the next Ferns, what Franz, Franz Ferdinand, Ferdinand. Yeah. like who who are your top three Franz Ferdinand bets? Oh, I I, <laughs> I I think you actually nailed one of them. I think Israel's one of them. Mm -hmm. Um. And, you know, it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Franz Ferdinand assassination type thing, but it could very well be like an assassination of a Netanyahu or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that guy's definitely doesn't have a lot of love in the world, right? Um, you know, but I think, I think, you know, I think Franz Ferdinand is just one of those kind of false flags things sure. too that... Sure. You know, we it, it, were led to believe that that was the cascade of, cascade of events, but the cascade of events had already started at the tail end of World War One. Yeah, that was just a culmination of events brewing to such a point where it was now it's now it's a fire and and that fire had to go somewhere. And Franz Ferdinand was a scapegoat for that, I guess you could say. But um, I think, you know, the fire has been brewing since World War Two. Um, you know, th things didn't really get settled. Um, and I think, you know, you could even make the argument that it's been brewing since the Cold War as well. But I think World War II is probably a bit more applicable if you look at all the, the series of events. But, yeah, this is, I think, you know, all these wars have been kind of to determine who controls those resources going forward, right? And that just that question has yet to be settled. So I think, in terms of the way that humans operate societally, um, that question has to be answered. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up World War Two. You know, when I when I think of the World Wars, I think of especially World War Two. I start thinking like, wow, the Nazis were really good at making a lot of money when they just went into hyperinflation. You know, like how do they how do they get all this money? And you're like, oh, I see. The banks bankrolled them. Oh, wait a minute. What was that headline about BlackRock meets with Zelensky to rebuild <laughs> to rebuild the Ukraine? Like, oh, they've already figured out who's getting the contracts to rebuild all the stuff that Russia's killing. 
I wonder if yeah. Russia gets a cut back from that or, you know, I wonder what's happening in the back room. But either way, it looks like Vanguard and it looks like BlackRock have the contracts to rebuild. Now, I bet you there's some Chinese developers that are pretty pissed off that they're not getting a cut of that, you know. And so yeah. all of a sudden you start seeing the finance behind the war. And that, to me, is a spot where there can be the Franz Ferdinand flashpoint is these giant multinational banking industries fighting over the red meat that's left there. And there's tons for everybody, but they want it all. So they're willing mm -hmm. to fight and just you know, flood the country with money and weapons and arms. And you know, all it takes is that one flashpoint for you know, some – no one wants there to be a nuclear war. But there's somebody like a John Bolton or a Victoria Newland that's like, look, man, we can we can recover from a first strike. Let's just throw this thing. Let's teach these guys a lesson, you know. And well, you know, I would like to think, yeah. uh, I would like to think that there's not anybody out there who wants a nuclear war. But I have a feeling that there probably is a few. Yeah, I I mean, on a, in a weird sort of way, I could see the logic behind it. Like, look, the the world is in such a mess. If we had a nuclear, a, a limited nuclear strike, it would wake the world up and we would become loving people once again. Like I could see that twisted logic happen. <laughs> that is twisted for sure. <laughs> but no, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I could definitely see people rationalizing that behavior. It's like all, you know, again, existential threats, right? Right. Once that existential threat rears its ugly head, all of a sudden you will have a whole bunch of people come together and and say, no, we're going to do it this way. You know, the thing is, is I think there's a lot of factors in there, too. I mean, how much does it cost to maintain these thousands of nuclear weapons that that we have? Right. Um, they're all getting aged, too. They're all made yeah. in 1970s. Right. You know, half these things probably wouldn't even fly if the button was pushed. Yeah. Let alone actually detonate, you know? So I think there's a lot of factors in there, you know, it's kind of the same principle of us sending all our old arms over to the Ukraine yeah. to reflush through that system. Why wouldn't the same logic apply at the nuclear level and all of that infrastructure? Yeah. You know, mean, to the people who are yeah. playing, playing the game. Right. Yeah, I agree. 100%. I, you know, I, I was listening to some people the other day and they were talking about, you know, the Biden crime family. And hmm. it's really no different than the Trump crime family or the Clinton crime family or the Obama yeah. crime family you know, or, or the Putin crime family or the Xi Jinping crime family. Like if you yeah. look at the world as a set of gangster, a mob families, like it makes much more sense. And if you continue mm -hmm. to hold that idea in your head. I want people to try to hold that idea of the people that rule us as mob warring families. And as you're thinking about that, take that idea and just put that plug that idea into the movie Goodfellas where Paulie buys the restaurant. There's a, for those that don't know, there's this really nice restaurant and this guy's this Italian guy. It's beautiful. It's got the scenery, the ambiance, the food. It's beautiful. Only there's this one gangster played by Joe Pesci that goes in there and he's a total punk. He goes in there, he runs up the bill, runs up thousands of dollars, never pays it, threatens the owner. So the owner goes to the mob boss and says, look, hey, you're, you're, you're Gambino guy over here. He runs everything up. Why don't you become a partner with me? And then that guy will pay his bills. And the guy's like, I don't know you. I don't know nothing about it. So the, the guy, the mob boss says, okay, I'll do it. He ends up taking over the restaurant. 
they run it into the ground. They run, they get as many credit cards as they can. They take out a second, a third, a fourth in the restaurant. They take all the money, soak it all out. <clears throat> and then when there's nothing left, they set it on fire. <clears throat> and it's really no different than what's happened to our countries, whether you're mm -hmm. Russia, maybe Russia might be a little bit different, but it seems to me in the United States where I live, that's what's happened. We've come in, we've run everything up. We've run the credit cards. We've completely maxed them out. We're taking out a second, a third on all the American people. You see in the tech companies cut their jobs. Like all of a sudden we're getting to this point where the next move is you burn it down and collect the insurance money. You know, and I, it just seems to me like that is, and if, if you want to look at another scale, like that's what happened in Russia, right? Like they, we beat mm -hmm. Russia. I don't know if we beat them, but there was some economic the warfare. Union. They yeah. collapsed. All the oligarchs came in. They bought up for everything for pennies on the dollar. Putin comes in, kicks out some of them. And that's why he's so loved over there. If, if we can see that model happen, you know, you could argue that that's something called creative destruction. It's a way to redistribute the resources once there's been some monopolies. And why wouldn't it happen here? Like, there's no excuse why that wouldn't happen here. That's a business model. And there's a, so much money to be made on that model. And you can already see it kind of happening. The United States has now gone from a republic and a, you know, a, a democratic republic to somewhat of an oligarch. Like, you know, Bill Gates owns the most land. Who do we look to for leadership? We look to Elon Musk. He's a billionaire. How about the guy from Oracle? He's a billionaire. How about Jeff Bezos? He's a billionaire. Like, we're starting to look at oligarchs as the only people that can do things. And that looks a lot like Russia before it collapsed. Well, and it's also very reminiscent of the history of humanity. I mean, well you know, said. you go back, you go back to monarchies, you go back even yep. before the monarchies that, you know, you, you have, you've always had the aristocracy yeah. that has, that has always played this. If they're not directly oligarchs, they're supporting, you know, organized crime and mobs and, and gangs and all of these other things. Uh, we, we seem to be stuck in a, in a recurrent model of how to do things. And, you know, for the people who make a lot of money, it's a good system, right? Like, yeah. you, you, I mean, you're winning a lot. Uh, it just so happens that that's, you know, a fraction of a percent of the total people on the planet. And occasionally that bill comes home, you know, instead of uh, them being able to burn down, you know, and get the insurance money, you know, they catch all those guys in the act before they're about to burn it down and they string them all up. And that's happened before in society, too. Yeah. And then it'll be interesting to see, you know, how far you can push modern society with all of this mass communication that we have, because I think we're probably going to see it within our lifetimes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wish I could see some of the data that was collected when there was COVID and you got to see how many people complied with laws, what genders complied, what races complied, what age groups complied, what propaganda was effective, you know, what, how much were we able to destroy housing, on what level did we hurt education, and what are the results? Like, there's so much knowledge that was gained during this process. And to think that that knowledge won't be used against the people the next time it happens, you know, I, I, oh, you know, yeah. right. Like, I, I don't think it's too far fetched to say that, you know, the rhetoric about the United States sending money to Ukraine coincides with the, the grounding of planes, the crashing of wall street, like all these things have happened in the last, like 
month and a half. And it coincides with all the rhetoric that's been happening in Ukraine. It's almost as if it's, if it's tit for tat. Hey, the U.S. is sending this stuff over there. Hey, guess what? All our planes are grounded for the first time since 9-11. Hey, the stock market can't open. Like Those are attacks. Like That is a tit for tat attack against the United States. That is people testing our infrastructure. That's like the people that do Perhaps. pen testing, right? I mean, I, I don't know that, but that's my opinion. Well, you perhaps, you know, and we talked about it before, too. It's, right. You have an aging infrastructure of all this stuff. Like that whole FAA thing was apparently, so they claim, a corrupted file. And you have, a, a you know, this old archaic system running to the point where there's no redundancy in it. And that a single file corrupts itself and can ground the entire fleet of, of domestic travel. Like, wow, you know, where's the money to upgrade that system? How much money does the FAA get? I'm sure they've gotten enough to build a new system. I, I, I'm pretty damn sure of that. But yet it all gets filtered away in corrupt contracts and all these other things. You know, it's the stepbrother. It's the, all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, I see it at the, the local city level here in Colorado Springs all the time. And it's just corrupt bullshit. You know, uh, I think. It was a couple of years back. The police department got three hundred thousand dollars to make a new web website, essentially, you know, with some services attached to it. Uh, the person who ends up getting a contract was the uh, it was the stepbrother of the local city council head city councilman, right? And all the money ends up disappearing. The website doesn't actually end up changing all that much. All the services promised don't get, don't, don't happen. And then it eventually just gets scrapped with no sort of inquiry or anything like that. <laughs> but $300,000 is gone, right? Of taxpayer money. And I, you know, I think that happens just rampantly. And I think it happens at federal level, even, even more so, um, you know, like, what was it? It was uh, Obama's, Somebody related to Obama got the contract for all of that, um, uh, the uh, Obamacare mm -hmm. system, right? And then they had to call in Google to fix the damn thing because it all crashed and it was a piece of garbage. So, you know, I think we, we that's where a lot of this goes too. It's, you know, this just kind of nepotistic corruption. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it's it, it's a sad state of affairs. I, I had a point and I forgot where I was going with it. Though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what's worse between, you know, if it's a if it's a terrorist attack that takes down the FFA or the FAA or a corrupted file. I think a corrupted file would, would be worse than a terrorist attack. Like you put in the wrong file. You put in the wrong file and that happened. Like we don't even yeah, need a well, terrorist to take us down. We'll do it ourselves. Yeah, that's what that was what I was getting to. I was, you know, the it's basically like planned incompetence. Yeah. Right. And I think that actually is worse than a terror attack, you know, because, you know, if that's if that one system is that fragile, imagine the fragility of all the other systems, everything from, you know, electric companies to, you know, gas companies to, you know, federal operations, all these things. I think, it, you know, I saw an estimate that. Uh, cybercrime is going to account for some $2 trillion is coming mm. up here. And, you know, a lot of that's just taking advantage of those old shitty systems and, you know, and putting ransomware on it and, you know, having somebody send you tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, that happens all the time. 
doesn't make news because they don't yeah. it's the same reason they, they don't, don't yep. broadcast every time a bank gets robbed yeah. You know, they don't want to encourage people to do it. But, you know, I, I hear of these all the time on security forums, you know, electric companies, gas companies, uh, you know, medium sized insurance companies, uh, hospitals, uh, you know, all sorts of different systems that are just, you know, they're 20 years in the past for one. But for two, you know, like all this nepotistic, corrupted systems have just drained out any of the ability for these things to adapt and grow and function at, at scale in the society that we have today. And so they're just propped up to be picked off by the next criminal. You know, now, now that you say that, who's to say that that's not exactly what happened? Who's to say there wasn't some ransomware that took down the FFA? That makes more sense. Hey, we uploaded a corrupted file. Oh, you mean you got ransomware and you had to pay like a, you know, $10 billion in Bitcoin. Is that what happened? Cause that's, that's a corrupted file. Yeah, you know that's that's interesting to think about, and you're right. I mean, I remember a few years ago there was a rash of these ransomware things. It was all over the news, and now you don't hear about mm -hmm. it at all. But it doesn't mean it stopped. It just means we stopped oh, no. publicizing it. Yeah, yeah, they, and I, I still hear about them all the time on security forums. In fact, you know, there was some claim from some group that said that they were able to hack um, in a, the industrial controller. So basically everything like, you know, all your mining equipment, every all your big machinery, all these stuff, they have these controllers that communicate with various systems in it to make it all happen. Right. So basically like you're, you know, it, to move the bucket on a on a on a front end loader type idea. Yeah. There's a little control circuit and they claim to have hacked that and put ransomware on that. <laughs> That's so, so now imagine, Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere. You know, I, I just I. Now that we're talking about it, there was an article that talked about Bank of America customers not able to use their oh, app. I that. Right? That was pretty recent. Yeah. That's a hack. Like, and you know, this this it all ties together. Like, there's so many cracks in the system. And maybe that is the rush to a CBDC. Is like, look, dude, we're getting dinged every day with ransomware. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do except pay them. We have to print money and pay them. That's all we can do. You know, in in a weird way. Rich. You almost, I almost, I'm almost proud of the hackers because like they're finally doing what the one percent's been doing to the smallest people forever. They've just been finding ways to hack the system and get paid for not doing anything. And I don't condone that behavior, but at least some some goat herder somewhere, probably not a goat herder on it, is doing any <laughs> hacking. But in my mind, some guys just raking ten million dollars from Bank of America or something like that, even though they probably come and take it back from us, like. And some level, well, it brings me joy to think about small people stealing from the richest people. Well, that's the Robin Hood story, right? There you go. Yeah. yeah. And I was always a fan of Robin Hood, too, back in the day, and, you know, because it was kind of like the great equalizer, you know, somebody actually standing up for the common individual. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of what's happening these days is anywhere like that. It's not the goat herder. It's not the Robin Hood. It's state sponsored. Yeah. It's state sponsored right. attacks, you know. Um, you know, just like things like the Stuxnet thing that the U.S. developed to infiltrate Iranian nuclear facilities. You know, the the amount of money that went into that operation and sophistication that went into that, you know, and ransomware is not too sophisticated. I remember when ransomware first came out, um, you know, you could actually beat the ransomware by being faster than the loader for Windows. So if you hit all control delete fast enough, 
it, you can see everything that's loading on old Windows oh, XP yeah. machines, and you could just end task <laughs> on that before it actually got to do its thing because it wasn't actually encrypting the drive at that time. It was just saying it was just shutting down your ability to interact with uh, Windows Explorer and saying that it encrypted the drive, but it never actually did. Um, now they're a bit more sophisticated and, and they do a lot of that. But yeah, even the groups who are running that stuff, you know, they might not be state sponsored groups, but they're organized groups of basically organized crime. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, when I think about the future, I think about the quote that the best way to predict the future is to create it. And in some ways, I would like to maybe, maybe we, we, you, me, anybody listening to this or anybody that just is upset with the amount of corruption happening, maybe there's a way to create culture. Like maybe there's a way to reinvent the Robin Hood story and start making YouTube videos about this common person that wakes up and finds a way to steal money from the very richest people in the world and just deposit it in people's bank accounts. Or maybe there's like this old Charles, maybe you could do this old Charles Bronson Deadpool thing where like, you know, you, you, know, you figure some ways out to like put the ruling power on notice. Like, look, okay, okay, we're cattle, we're nothing. How about this then? What if this cat, what if this sheep does this, you know? And I think that those narratives are extremely powerful. And in fact, I heard a similar narrative applied to Andrew Tate saying that, you know, and I don't know a whole lot about Andrew Tate or what he's done, but I heard this guy saying yesterday that like, you know, and, and on some level, I think, yeah, why not? You know, when somebody gets so big and begins creating a following, regardless of whether you think that that following is reprehensible, the fact that one person can begin to influence people means that that person has the ability to sway votes. That person is becoming a real influence. And when you have someone who's becoming a real influence and that person is not controlled, that's a big problem. You know, th mm -hmm. that's how, when we look back at history, movements get started. And if you mm -hmm. have someone that is, that is saying things, speaking out against the system, well, you know, you saw what happened to MLK. You saw what happened to RFK and JFK. You know, it's a real possibility that an Andrew Tate-like figure could arise. And if someone like that did arise and was sparking tensions, then they would be picked up. They would be moved away. But, you know, and maybe that's a, maybe that's a bonus. Maybe seeing signs of people rising to power that don't conform to the system is a symptom that the system is getting ready to be just defiled. I, I think it is a symptom of the, of the fractures in the system. Yeah. You know, like, for instance, Joe Rogan became the most important voice yeah. in the United States, you know, superseding both CNN, Fox News, CBS, CSNBC, all combined, yep. right? Um, I And, yeah, I think they would love to put a rein on him. But he's not too big of a threat because he just interviews people. He just he, – he doesn't actually have a cause that's you right. know, he's dedicated to. Whereas you had somebody like a Tate who – decided that he had a cause um yeah and again reprehensible or not notwithstanding um you know he did get an influence that was just a whole order of magnitude above anything else that anybody else was doing yeah. right there there was a solid what six months there where you couldn't go throughout the day without hearing that guy's name
Yep. Whether that be from a talking head on television or, you know, a communication with a random person at the convenience store or the grocery store. Yeah. And so that type of power is something that, you know, cannot remain unchecked in the world yeah. that we live in. Yep. It has to it has to be checked at some level. And sorry. You could argue that, you know, those checks are good or bad. Uh, I would tend to lean more towards bad because, you know, you're essentially limiting the marketplace of ideas that can, you know, find the solutions to remove us from this calamity that we seem just, you know, dead set on, on heading towards. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and then when you when you peel back the onion and you look at it from that level, like there's just so many moving parts and. But, but like you said, that also creates opportunity, you know, like we, you and I talking, you know, thousands of miles apart, expressing ideas, finding ways to do what we're passionate about, all the while still going ahead and living our lives. But in some ways, I think another problem that is bad for the machine, but is good for the individuals is that each individual is beginning to take ownership of their own productivity. And that's why you see a lack of productivity in the workplace because that product, the pro productivity for the individual has never been higher. It's just that the corporations Agreed. no longer own that productivity. And so they're mm -hmm. seeing flip. Like there's this weird narrative going around. Like, where are all the people? Where are all the people? Where are all the people? Like, and it, it, I'm still trying to parse it out a little bit. You know, they, the, the numbers on jobs are like, there's, there is more <laughs> jobs like like we're in recession, but there's jobs everywhere. And like there's just this weird sort of, well, that they're part time jobs. Well, they're these jobs. Well, they're this. like no one really has a real answer, but it seems like more and more people are no longer working. And like I just don't it just seems like they're not working in a way that's measured by the official machine. Right. Because people are still working. We're still doing stuff. So the model is changing right in front of us. And I. You know, I know that you and I talk a lot about a lot of the problems, but maybe this is a way for us to to shift gears and talk about what the positive benefits are, and that is people owning their own productivity, whether through its podcasts, making videos, teaming up with ChatGPT to find ways to make your life better. You know, uh, I see a lot of people on YouTube doing their own little family shows with their kids and. It's, mm -hmm. it's like the, it's in some ways, I think what's happening is the middleman is starting to be pushed out. What do you think? I, I would agree that the middleman is definitely being pushed out. I mean, you know, we have the, the invention of this word side hustle into the zeitgeist. Yeah. Right. You know, um, and rewind 50, 60 years, no one would ever consider a side hustle. You know, yeah. the company that you worked for for 35 years has a pension for you and you're going to retire and there's, so, you know, Social Security and all of these things. Whereas there's a realization now that there's it just doesn't work. Right. right. That system yep. is broken and gone by and large in most places. You know, I, I know very I could count on one hand the number of people who have a pension fund with work. Yep. Uh, you know, there's no loyalty from the top down so that, you know, that ultimately fast forwarded a generation, there's no loyalty from the bottom up anymore. So now that loyalty has has moved to the individual. Well, there's nobody else who's going to take care of me. So now I have to go off and I have to find some side hustles. I have to develop skills. I have to try new things. And I think ultimately that is a good thing for the individual. Um, yeah, I think. 
there's a lot of hiccups there. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of speed bumps, but at, at the end of the day, you know, it's almost like a renaissance of small and medium businesses in this country, even though all, most of the small and medium businesses got bankrupted and slurped up the, the spirit for that is probably greater than it ever has been. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. And, you know, I think one, another thing that we can do and, and by we, I mean, people that just get up and, go to work every day that aren't millionaires or sit on a board of directors. I think we can just hijack the narrative. Like build back better is a great narrative. Like, look, hmm. okay. Let's, let's think about it like this for the last hundred years. Probably we've our country, the United States has been playing this game of Jenga and only you people like you and me, we would build the blocks and the people on the top would take the blocks and they would take them from the bottom of the Jenga pile and put them in their pocket. And they'll take it from the bottom. And then so they have they have undermined the foundation of this country so bad that the tower has fell over. But no one's noticed yet. And now we're starting to notice. So if you look at it from that angle, like everyone's, oh, it's going to collapse. Oh, actually, it's already collapsed. So you might as well start doing what you want to do, the side hustle. Like you said, that's a great point talking about how you didn't need the side hustle before. But now if you don't have a side hustle – then you're not going to have anything because what you have is slowly going away. And in some ways, maybe that is the soft landing. Maybe the soft landing is, hey, it, it collapsed in 08, guys. It, <laughs> it died you know, 12 years ago. So you should be trying to transition into the new world economy. In fact, you guys need to start stepping up and moving into the world economy. You know, maybe, this is, maybe this is the powers that be just trying to push the public like, hey, that system died in 08, man. It's dead. You don't live in that country anymore. It's a new world and you have to start figuring out new things. Here's this new tool. Why don't you use this chat GPT? We've used it for the last 30 years. It worked great for us. Now you can use it. You know, like here's this new technology. We've had all this technology for 30 years. It worked for us. Now you guys try it. We've got this new stuff. So we don't need that crap anymore. You know, so maybe that's what's been happening. And if you look at it from that angle, like it kind of makes sense. Like there's these new world, like, 20 years ago, if your kids said they wanted to be an influencer, you'd be like, wait, get the hell out of here. You're not an influencer. You want to make YouTube videos? Yeah, they got to do nothing. But now there's a real possibility that, you know, there, there's kids that are, you know, 18, 19, 15, seven years old, making a million dollars a month, you know? So it, mm -hmm. it, it's out there. And I think if people are willing to believe in themselves. And maybe this is one of the biggest problems and epidemics that we see in the world is that people no longer have faith in their ability to move forward in life. They no longer have the vision or the dream or the idea of, I can do it. It seems well, impossible, it been, but I can do it. It was indoctrinated out of them, right? Yeah, it was. I, I mean, our education system has, you know, by and large since the 70s, aimed to remove that very bit of fabric of of the individual yeah yeah the the prussian school model came in and said you are an obedient worker you need not dream you need not think the, those things will be provided to you you need not read poetry or literature or shakespeare that stuff is we don't need poets we need mm. obedient workers now get in there <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't even need that right we didn't no no. Yeah, which is kind of wild. It was, yeah, it's, it went from, we quickly transitioned from the age where we needed obedient workers to all of a sudden we have computers and we have robotics and we have, you know, 
massive machinery able to replicate the work of a hundred people. And, and yeah, so I, I think there is, there's something to be said about how that has played out and where we are today. Um, probably won't articulate it too well, but I think that, you know, we're, we're at a precipice where, you know, you don't need the factory workers, you know, where we've talked a little bit about it before, but you know, like your chat GPTs, your AIs, all of these things coming in. Yeah. They're not perfect yet. Yeah. They can't ultimately replace, you know, a one-off human, but now you can have one human do the work of seven humans and you don't mm -hmm. have to pay six salaries. And I think that's the, that's that, that next step, that next iteration that we're going to see. And I think in that, you know, you're going to have such a displacement of people who are working menial jobs and are so indebted to the system that the rollout of these central bank digital currencies to will be kind of like the stopgap to try to solve that problem all of a sudden, because you're going to need to be giving out universal basic income in downtown Chicago. Otherwise, it's going to turn into a war zone and, and there'll be no businesses because everybody will loot everything and just in order to survive. Uh, and so what's the solution? Well, we give everybody $4,000 a month. How do you get that $4,000 a month? Well, you have to have this app on this phone. How do you get access to this app on this phone? Well, guess what? You have to make sure that you check all these boxes. You got your vaccination. You, uh, you know, you don't have anything negative to say about the government. And you, and we've already seen this model roll out in China, yeah. right? Uh, so, the technology already exists, and I think that's where I think that's where we're going to see kind of twenty twenty five ish. I think we're going to start to see those those types of situations arise. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so refreshing to talk to you because I feel like I've all, I've all, all these ideas in my head and you read all this stuff, but then you begin talking to somebody and then you know you can bounce ideas off each other and then you begin to kind of like echo locating. You can, uh, you can kind of see where you're at, you know, by people kind of bouncing ideas off each other. And it makes me think that, you know, when you, when you look at the world of, money. Actually, I had a, I had a nice little experiment with chat GPT the other day. I've been playing with it and I oh, asked yeah. chat GPT, do you think that within the next 10 years, I'm just paraphrasing here that we will see the idea and the concept of money change in the world. And it says it, it, it started off with like a sort of like a, you know, a, a, a wash. Like the idea of money is, is a difficult thing to define. However, I feel because I, I guess prompting is everything. So I said, act as an economist, a geopolitical strategy, right. and a banker. Do you think the idea of money will change? And it said, I do think that within the next 10 years, the idea of money will be somewhat redefined. It seems that the trends of peer to peer lending see, seem to be quickly, you know, taking the place of the legacy systems. And I was like, well, there you go. I mean, if, 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 even if you just look at chat GPT as if something that's scraping and compiling, you know, there's so much review, there's so much literature on peer to peer lending. It almost seems like, you know, it's, it's like fighting, a, you know, fighting a fifth grader or something like that. Like, yeah, peer to peer is probably going to win. I mean, this is Mike Tyson and, you know, this is a fifth grader. So it's probably going to win. And when you start looking at it from that angle, 
it, I think it begins to show that argument, the idea of the monetary system failing begins to show roots in all the other problems around the world, whether it's our problem with the petrodollar, it's the problem with Iran, it's the problem in Ukraine, it's the problem with the finance or the uh, financial systems, it's the problem with automation, like finance underpins all everything. And when there's cracks in finance, everything else begins to break because it's, it's the blood in the system, right? It's, it's that which provides the nutrients to the body. And if the body's not getting nutrients, the arm dies, the leg dies, things start getting mm -hmm. cut off. And, you know, I, I really think that that is, that is the issue. And, you know, is it Bitcoin? Is it, you know, is there going to be a revamp of FTX or is it going to be, you know, you, you, you get paid by your company, you get a company dollars, you can spend at the company store. I, I think that, it's going to be all those things, maybe not FTX, but I think it's going to be all those things. You know, you're going to see a complete breakdown of the monetary system before we find something. Maybe we'll never have another, another, um, world reserve currency. Maybe that's what happens. Maybe we don't need one, you know? Yeah. It's bad for finance, but way better. If I can, if I can find a company that, that buys, you know, uh, some sort of, um, you know, uh, supplements in china that i like and i can just pay that guy bitcoin he third-party researches them, and i just buy right from him you know and mm -hmm. i'm sure those types of platforms will pop up and you can just you can already do it on the dark market like the dark market's pretty it's pretty efficient in a lot of ways and like it's mm -hmm. it's probably why ross is sitting in prison because he, 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 he changed everything yeah well there's a rabbit hole there <laughs> um no i you know i, I think decentralized settlement systems kind of like bitcoins and things like that are definitely going to play a pivotal role in how this all unfolds out yeah and i think the response to that is the move towards these central bank digital currencies because then um from kind of a more economic perspective you can compete against those systems yeah you know if you think about the our debt-based economic system in terms of you know how much overhead it consumes mm -hmm. I mean, it's massive right how big are bank buildings you know all of the resources that go to run those all of the people resources all of the technological mm -hmm. resources uh let alone you know these settlement networks and all of this all of the the p politicization that's happened via those you know like how cutting out russia for instance and how much did that cost right uh when you start to add up the cost of running that system it, at a global level, it's just massive, which is why I think you, you know, it opened the door for a thing like a Bitcoin to come in at a, at a competitive level, because now you're democratizing the cost of trust and you're putting it into the cost of the electricity that to run the system. Uh, and so I think the central bank digital currency is kind of the, the international monetary funds response to that. And I think that's why we've seen the push at the national level for all of these CDBCs. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that, uh, I, I, I don't, the more that we talk about it, the more I think to myself that what you're seeing is the big businesses, the politicians running in and taking the silverware before the ship goes down. Right. I, 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 you know, I can't, 
I, I would like to say I could see it other ways, but the evidence seems to suggest that that's exactly what's happening. You know, we're we're watching just the pilfering of of society um, at a, on a global scale. Yeah, it, you know, it makes sense. Like all of a sudden, there's these classified documents being found everywhere. But but really, that's just blackmailing. Look, dude, I told you to send tanks over there. I don't care if you don't want to do it. Either you send tanks or we start finding documents. Either you send mm -hmm. tanks or your kid goes to prison forever. He's a mm -hmm. degenerate. Send the tanks. Send the planes. Otherwise, your kid's going to prison. Oh, well, you got mm -hmm. something to say, Pence? Let me check out your house. Oh, what, Trump? You got something to say? Guess what I found in Mar-a-Lago? Like, you can begin to see the black hand that's just – or you know what? Maybe this is, maybe this is the fabled invisible hand coming in and moving the market around. <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, I, I think it's, I think it's the, it's the backhand. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's I think, funny. I think, you know, the whole reason that every single one of those has classified documents is because they were profiting off of them. Yeah. You don't just keep classified documents to keep classified documents to get your rocks off. No, you have right. them for a specific purpose. Right. And, that, and just like everything else in this world, that purpose is tied to profit at some level. And so, you know, you profit off of that. And then all of a sudden the backhand comes and now it's, and now it's saying, guess what? You're going to play ball this way. Otherwise all that profiting you did. Mm -mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so, and then it, it just takes us back to mob, like the, the mob mentality of like, God, with all these ideas about these grand sweeping visions of a, of a, a a beacon of freedom, a city on a hill. <laughs> There's just all this corruption and people stealing stuff and people being trafficked. And like, like the song remains the same, regardless of where you're living or what part of the country mm -hmm. you're in. You know, it, it's, it's almost Shakespearean in a way. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, you know, I think like we said, right, back then similar shit was happening except the only way to right. get that word out and, ex and expose what was happening was through, you know, plays was through, yeah. you know, musicians, uh, you know, in, they would, you know, in, in town criers. Right. Um, now fast forward, instead of the plays, the musicians and the town criers, we have the internet. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. It, it's, it's the, it's the, rate of change that has increased to a speed that is blinding. You know, it, it used is. to be someone would put on a play and they would find the actors and then they would travel around. And now it's like, you just wait for the Twitter files to drop. Yeah. Pull out your phone. <laughs> there it is. You know, and, now, and mm -hmm. now you can participate in the play. You want to be a player. Okay. Let's see what you got. You know, if you want to try mm -hmm. out, let's go. And I, I think that that's cause for celebration. The fact that you can, mm -hmm that you can play in the, in the play and you can become a player of sorts instead of, you know, being cast aside or having a lead role in a cage somewhere, you know, now it, it, it maybe in some ways we're moving towards a more meritocratic system, you know, like you, you I think there so. are people, what do you think? I think so. Uh, it, I, I think it breeds tremendous opportunity. Um, yeah. but at the same time, you know, it's it's not going to be the easy road because the 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 structures that exist, uh, you know, have a very strong uh, inclination to hold on to, 
you know the power and and all of the money and all of the all of the structures that have been entrenched for hundreds of years now so for it to change just because you know we're making a couple youtube videos it very well could you know you know it very well could but the likelihood is that it, it's it it's going to have a bit more friction along the path i think yeah it's it's we, we are like uh pieces of straw on the camel's back and so you know every one of us just just throw your piece of straw up there you know it may seem like nothing right now but eventually you know you get enough piece yeah yeah eventually that's enough straw it'll break that back and in some ways it's it's the story of the little guy finally finding his voice or the maybe the little girl finding her voice or yeah it, when i look at it like that you know I, I think it's a great story arc to see the world of people being oppressed finding a voice and starting anew and you know we talk about this all the time about the story of death and rebirth and the hero's I, I, journey the hero's journey you know the story of the camel to the child and the mythological structure of it and i as much doom and gloom as we see and i'm not saying that there's not going to be difficult times ahead but i think at some point in time when things are at their very darkest people are going to realize that the worst is over you know and, and i can i can kind of see it when i if i squint my eyes a little bit i can see like <laughs> There's so much doom and gloom, but I think maybe the worst might be behind us. You know, maybe living in a world, maybe we are coming out of one of the most corrupt times in human history. While it may not have been the most brutal, at least for those of us living in a rich Western country, you know, the level of corruption, if we can agree that the corruption that we're seeing today has always happened. And we can agree that there was never as big of a spotlight on it. Then we must also agree that it was happening in the dark. And it's better that you can see it because then you can begin fixing it. And I think that that's where right. we are. And that's what I mean. Like I, I think the worst may be behind us. And I don't know anybody mm. that's saying that, but I, I think it's true. I think you can look at it and be like, man, we didn't even know that was happening. But now we do. Now here's my piece of straw. And people are coming together. I think it was Julian Assange who said that censorship is something that we should all be praising because it means the people that are in power applying the censorship are so weak that words will bring them down. And that's where we are. There's a, an incredible amount of censorship. So I think there's reason to be celebrating. I agree there's reason to be celebrating. I'm not sure I agree that the worst is behind <laughs> us. Um, I think, you know, I, I think there has to be a bit more of a collective reckoning. Hmm. Um, and there was a part of me, cause I, I had the, the similar thoughts before COVID actually happened. And when COVID happened, I was like, wow, this could actually be that reckoning. Uh, you know, just all the, the way it unfolded, you know, where the vaccine came from, how fast it was released. You know, there's a lot of pieces of evidence to suggest that there was some, some shenanigans afoot. And I thought that there was enough of a global communication that, you know, a spotlight would be, you know, thrown into those dark places. And then we saw that that wasn't the case. Yeah. You know, apparently those dark places had a few tricks up their sleeve to remain in the dark. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, it also did shine a spotlight in just how entrenched things actually were and are to this day but i think yeah you know you don't 
we don't see the light uh, in the darkness in, until there is that opportunity for something to shine upon it. Yeah. And I and I think we are at that point where we do have the opportunity for the light to shine into the darkness. And, you know, these conversations, people being able to communicate in mass, I think is the beginning of that. And then probably historically looking back, they'll be like, oh, that was the mm -hmm. turn. That was when mm -hmm. things actually turned um, in terms of like the bad things that have to happen in order for us to evolve past that. I think we still have a few pretty crazy things coming down the pike yeah it makes sense that you know if the corruption the infection doesn't leave without a fight and right, right when it's when an when an animal is back into a corner it's going to come out swinging and it, mm -hmm. it, it seems that you know the people around the world rising up are in fact trying beginning to corner that scared animal that is like I have nuclear weapons, you know, and they, there's all these threats coming out. Oh, we're going to give you COVID. We're going to give you these shots. Like, you know, in, in some fashion, it does seem like the machine or the, the uh, wizard of Oz or the man behind the curtain is, is becoming scared is, you know, and they, someone is scared when they start threatening, when their voice grows louder, they start threatening more and more and more and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work. And like, that's what the rate of change is. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, prior to COVID, you know, I was just looking back at some timelines and there were riots all over the world. There were riots in Greece, oh, riots yeah. in France, Brit, you know, Brexit, Donald Trump, nationalism was breaking out everywhere. And it was like, okay, we can't control it. Just shut it all down. And they, and it did. I'm not, you know, I don't and know. Now if, it's coming back. Oh, and now it's coming back with a vengeance. Like yep. people in France are, there was a million people on the streets because they raised the working retirement age from 62 to 64, a million people on the streets. There's contracts coming up left and right in the United States. There's, uh, UK there's is protesting yeah. today. I, hundreds of thousands of people. Right? What are they protesting? Uh, working, working wages. So it's your nurses, it's your, your yep. public transport drivers. It's, it's all of those people. It gets us right back to finance. It gets us right back to the people and positions of authority that have, you know, and in some ways it's probably not just the people that are in authority now, but it's the generations that came before them that stole so right. much, you know, and, you know, right. they and are they kind of laid out a, a, a game plan and the people who inherited that, that nepotistic corruption yeah. that inherited that is just kind of playing out of the, of, of, of the playbook of, of who the people who set it up. Yeah. Which is why I think their only solution once things, you know, escalate to such a cacophony is to threaten, shut it all down, because that's the only thing that they know how to do. There is no innovation. There's no imagination. There's no creativity to adjust the playbook because it's just something they inherited. Yeah, they got all the narcissism and arrogance, but none of the creativity. <laughs> that's right. So what happens when was... you tell somebody they're special all their life? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> It's very true. I think it was Elon Musk that when he took over Twitter was saying some things along the lines of, look, you got to build stuff. You can't just give people everything. Like you have to build things in order for society to have culture and move forward. You have to do things. You can't just mm -hmm. get things and, and give people money and fly around. Like you actually have to build things and do stuff. And like, that's, that's one of the things that if you look at the giant multinational corporations, the only, the the only things they do to innovate is buy upcoming companies. Like they don't do anything. Yeah. 
you know? Right. So it's, it's interesting to see. And I, <clears throat> I do see this continued uprising of people. And if, if I were to look at my crystal ball and read some of the headlines from the world economic forum and some of the other people that are forecasting events, like it does seem that there will be some sort of internet shutdown on the horizon. Like that seems to be something that could be the ultimate shut it all down. I'm in the corner. I need some time to, I need my standing eight count. You know, what do you think about a, the internet going down? Is that possible? Well, I think, I mean, it's technically possible, right? Uh, you know, you cut all those international lines across the oceans and bye-bye internet. Um, would there be the, the impetus to do so? I don't know. I think there is such a vastly interconnected thing in terms of resource management, um, the transferring of goods, uh, that to just outright shut it down doesn't doesn't play well with how our society is structured. Hence right. why you have a China and a Russia who basically have these massive firewalls and they only allow certain bits of information, but they don't shut the whole thing down because they still need that, that interoperability, that interconnectivity. Uh, so I would actually, I think, but what you will probably see is much more a push towards that. So instead of having, you know, just this broad internet, you're going to have a very a much more fractured internet going forward where, and we already see it today. Like, you know, you put your location in Netflix and you're only subjected to a certain litany of shows as opposed to somebody in France or someplace else in the world. Um, you know, a TikTok in the United States has a very different algorithm than a TikTok mm -hmm. in China. And so I think we'll continue to see things move in that direction where it'll be depending on where you're geolocated on this planet will have a direct reflection on what sort of information you're exposed to and able to access. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to think about, you know, it, it, yeah. If you have the great firewall in China and different propaganda in different countries and different history books in different countries, like what's, it, it's an interesting experiment to see the way in which the world evolves when there's three or four or five or 15 different internets out there, all teaching people different, you know, it's almost like a speciation in a way. Indeed. Yeah. And I think, you know, you play that out a little bit. Um, and so you don't, it doesn't remove the ability for people to transact, but it definitely changes the narratives that are presented to people, to common people. Um, it's a it seems that it could be a great control mechanism but mm -hmm. i think like many great control mechanisms they seem to be very effective on the surface but you know it's where they're not effective becomes the things that destroy them and take them down yeah it's like a giant trojan horse like they, they like look right. at our shiny internet over here isn't this thing beautiful it makes the city look amazing aren't we great and then all of a sudden these troops just drop out of there and you're like oh oh we're screwed <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's maybe that you know maybe the the world works in mysterious ways and maybe the original idea of the internet to democratize and free information is doing exactly what it's supposed to do even though the people thought they had control of it. They thought they could get this thing. And that, that just speaks to the human condition. I can control this. I can control nature. I can do this. Like the, the, this world is littered with people who thought they could do that. And then, you know, it never mm -hmm. works. So, 
Right. And I think from the from the Internet perspective, you know, you have things you mentioned it like the dark net and things like this. But there is all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, the dark nets ran on something called onion routing, the Tor network, mm. which is about as old school as you could imagine in terms of how, um, you know, innovative people have developed new systems to transmit information around this world. Um, there's a thing called the IPFS, uh, which is basically completely anonymous in terms of uh, data transfer. And you can have websites out there that nobody could track the ownership of. Um, you know, some cryptocurrencies run on that system. Uh, so we have multiple different options from somebody saying, oh, you can't access the Internet. It, there's already been a dozen options developed that says we can Right. And yeah, you, 99% of people don't know about them, but all of a sudden you take away people's ability to access their, their TikTok and they'll find out about it real fucking fast. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Not to mention interesting ways of telecommunications. Like you can use Bluetooth and, you, and if everybody has this Bluetooth app, it's just a booster and you can bang it off phones until it gets to where it needs to go. It's right. Mesh networking has come right. a long way. You know, I, I can see, I, there's a really cool system that, you know, it'll transmit a couple miles. So all I have to do is every couple miles have these repeaters in place and I have mm -hmm. my own private internet. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it's, it's a fascinating experiment and it does give me hope. It does make me thankful for living in these times while these may seem chaotic. And I, sometimes I think that, it is just this fear campaign. Like maybe this is what, and I know sure. we said this before, but this is probably what freedom looks like. We we're actually moving into a world that is going to be full of opportunity and people would rather us be scared and cower in our, you know, so, sometimes I think there's this grand experiment and there's this one creator or there's something that says, look, let's try freedom. And this other group of people is like, they can never do it. These people are too dumb. They can't do it. And then, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a bargain that struck. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. But this one group is just trying to influence the people so much. Like, aren't you afraid? You're going to go to war. You're all going to die. Look at this disease. Like, and the other, the other creator is just like, I, it's pretty amazing that this eight year old kid or that this one guy is better than all of your legacy media systems. There's one guy, there's two people right here. And they're, they have more views than all of you. Like on some mm -hmm. level, the people that are running the system, have to at least see it and be like, you know what? We kind of suck, man. We had all the money. We had all the talent and we got beat by two people. Two. We got beat by Joe and Jamie. <laughs> they took them all down. And I think there's probably a good metaphor in there to, you know, what is control and what happens when you try to apply control mm. and, and, and what, and thereby what is freedom, right? And, and the importance of freedom. And I think, you know, you can you can fault them a lot for a lot of different things. And I don't agree with everything that was written back then. But the founding fathers had a pretty damn interesting idea when it came to, you know, why these things should exist. Right. And I think that we're continuing that experiment. Yeah, I would say that the, the United States experiment's probably going to end. But I think what it gives birth to. Mm. will be very, very fascinating and definitely a mark in the history books. Yeah, I like that. That's a great, I think it's a great spot to 
to leave it right there. I don't, I don't think I could add on that in any shape or form, man. That's beautiful. I do. Well, as we're, as we're coming down, Ben, what are you up to? Where can people find you and what are you excited about? Well, always up to some sort of shenanigans. <laughs> uh, people can find me at benjamincgeorge.com. I should have some more things being published here recently, finally putting the finishing touches on, you know, the Terra Libre project and how that's going and, uh, you know, getting that to the point where actually making it a reality in the world. Um, I have uh, version two of my book coming out. Um, I'm actually recorded a whole bunch of stuff, going to have like, you know, talks about breaking down the chapters and then going through the actual, you know, symbology where you know where the motivation came from you know all of those things so i'm excited about that now to put you on the spot a little bit right. you had mentioned in a previous podcast that if people wanted to read your book and they made a commitment to read your book that you would give them a free book is that something you can do for my listeners ben if they go to your website and they put in an email Absolutely. address there you Absolutely. go, ladies and gentlemen. You contact me and you you promise to review my book, even yeah. just personally to me. That's all I'd like. Free copy. <laughs> there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Go to BenjaminCGeorge.com. Get the free book. Review it. Talk to Benjamin C. George. It's a phenomenal book. Ben is one of my favorite people to talk to. I think if you talk to him, he'll be one of your favorite people to talk to. The book is phenomenal. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the breakdown of it and continuing to learn more about the upcoming trilogy and the Terra Libre project. So thank you so much, Ben, for being here. Thank you for that offer for my listeners. And I want to say thank you. thank you to everybody who participated. Barry, um, John, Jimmy, all these people in the chat over here. Thank you so much for taking time to hang out with us and ask some questions. So that's what we got for today. Ladies and gentlemen,
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.